Welcome to my Teacher Friends Podcast. My name is John Peschel, and as I enter my 21st year of teaching, I wanted to create a podcast to share stories, teaching tips, and inspiration. Each week, I'll be joined by one of my smart, talented, passionate teacher friends for a conversation about all things education. Join us, because there's no job as challenging or as rewarding as being a teacher. Today, I am joined by my good friend, Lachelle Greenlee. Um, she is a professional learning coordinator, um, and I'm thrilled that you're joining me today. Thank you. Uh, we're going to start a little bit with um, getting to know you. So can you talk a little bit about your educational history and what has led up to the position that you have now? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, John. It's fun to be here. Um, so I didn't start my educational career in the United States. My dad was in the Air Force, and so the first school I entered was a Dutch school in the Netherlands, um, where all of the kids and all of the teachers spoke Dutch, and I spoke only English. And so my mom tells a story about feeling terrified as I walked through the doors, um, and I didn't look back and loved it, apparently. It didn't scar me, at least. Right. So did you, so would you say that you loved school from, from the first time you entered it, right? Even though you had this unusual... From day start. one. Yeah. From day one. I loved school. I was one of those people who just loved it. I was devastated when I was sick and I couldn't go to school. Okay. I feel like a lot of teachers share that. I wonder if there are teachers that are on the other side that maybe didn't love school, but then wanted to make things better for kids. I wonder if there are teachers on the flip side or not, but... You know, I think there are, and um, I draw a lot of inspiration from them because they can tell the other side of the story that I didn't experience. Um, and so I think that's really... Right. That wasn't me, though. I just... I loved it. I was so that you started nerd. as this girl who didn't know the language but was super excited to be there. Yes, yes. And we didn't live there long. We moved back to the States when I was four or five, and then I attended kindergarten and first grade, and... We moved in the middle of my first grade year, and so I switched schools again, um, and then was pretty steady from second grade on in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, so okay. small town Fox Valley, and um, I went to Catholic grade school and public high school, and school was always um, enjoyable for me, and it was always something I worked really hard at. It was important to my parents that I did really, really well in school. Um, I don't know why exactly, except that they knew whatever came beyond doing well in school would serve me well in the end. Um, my parents didn't go to college. My mom went to one semester of college and love one, and she moved by my dad and his Air Force, um, his Air Force base in New Mexico. And then after high school, and I had sort of satisfied all of the doing really well and enjoying school. Um, I went to college at UW-Madison um, with my heart set on being a pediatrician. Wow. And so, yes. Okay. So I um, took about a semester and a half to decide that that wasn't for me. And I should have listened to everybody my whole life telling me I should be a teacher and applied to the School of Ed, and thus began that journey. Um, Why did you choose UW-Madison? Because it's, um, it's much different than Fond du Lac, right? The, it's, a, it's a large mm -hmm. school. It's a wonderful school. But there are other great schools in that uh, Fox Valley area that you referred to. So uh, 
what was it about Madison that was calling to you? Yeah, um, I wanted to go somewhere that was big, that was important to me, and I, I don't really know why, okay. um, but I applied to Madison and some other big schools, yeah. um, and I was really interested in medicine, and so they had programs and great reputations, and that's what I wanted to do, um, and I knew that it was close enough to home where I could just be near. I was the oldest. Um, I had two younger siblings still at home and I wanted to see them and keep that relationship. So, and it just, it felt right. I never actually visited the campus before I came for the orientation. (laughs) Wow. So leap of faith. Yeah. And so then you got into the school of education and how did that feel like making that shift, right? Like, did it feel like this is, this is the place for me? Did you feel it at that time? I did. I remember being relieved because I was worried that I wouldn't get in and then I didn't really have another plan. (laughs) Um, And so it did. It felt right. I was excited. And once I started with my cohort, because the, you know, you move through with a cohort and you get to know people, it just felt like that was the place I belonged. Um, And not really actually because I had enjoyed school. I didn't tie those things together at that point. But it felt like I was going to be doing something that was more important than just me. And that is the piece that felt really right at that point in time. So first jobs. What was your first job? I moved out to Baltimore, Maryland and taught fifth grade in a middle school for two years. I um, wanted to go somewhere else. I wanted to go away from Wisconsin and away from Madison and do something different. I wanted to teach in an inner city. Um, I had started sort of exploring identity and differences in people, and I hadn't experienced a lot of that growing up, and so I wanted to dive right in. And so I went to Baltimore and taught in a 100% African-American school for two years, and it was amazing. It was life-changing and um, really gave me a chance to figure out who I was as an educator make a lot of mistakes because mm-hmm. there was nobody there I right. knew. And it um, was really formative in the teacher that I am today, I think. So yeah, I was there for two years, had some great mentors, um, and then moved back to Madison and just continued my educational journey sort of back in the general area that I started. So you talked about the mentors that you had mm-hmm. uh, when you first started. What was that mentorship like? Um, And tell a little bit about how you relied on your mentor in that capacity. Because that's, uh, to fill everyone in, that's how we knew each other, we know each other, um, through our mentoring work in different districts. So talk to me about what mentoring was like for you when you first started. Yeah, so when I began my career, there wasn't a formal mentoring program Um, in my school or in my district. And so my principal said, here is this teacher. She's taught your grade and she's your person. And luckily for me, um, she was amazing. And she would check in with me after school every day. She gave me curricular resources. She would chat with me about how to make sure that what I was doing was relevant to kids. She herself was African-American and taught me a lot about what I didn't know about being Mm -hmm. black because I wasn't Mm -hmm. and really just was my work mom, kind of, you know, my mom was halfway across the country and 
and she was able to give me whatever I needed in that moment. And she pushed me really hard to think more deeply about what I was doing as an educator. She wasn't just like this emotional support person whose shoulder I could cry on, although I did. Um, she really helped me to see the bigger purpose in what I was doing as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, if you feel comfortable, I'd love to go a little bit deeper. You talked about um, things that you didn't know um, about um, teaching diverse populations. Mm-hmm. Um, can you share a little bit about maybe a misconception that you had going in and how that changed and evolved just to kind of really connect with people that, that may be wondering about that. Do you feel comfortable going there? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Um, so one story I, I tell stories to illustrate my points. <laughs> of course. That's great. That's great. One story I remember really clearly was, um, I, you know, had set up my classroom beautifully, right? It was my first year and my kids' names were all on their desks and everything was in order and, Um, They walked in the first day and I said, hey, I'm your teacher. And they were fine and, you know, good kids and everything. And as I was going on, I realized that they didn't take what I said at face value. Like they didn't trust what I was saying almost. Mm. Um, So asking clarifying questions or like asking why is that, is that what you were seeing, hearing? Yeah. They, yeah. That was okay. some of it. They, they wanted me to justify sort of what I was asking mm. them to do. Or okay. when I was talking to parents, they, they were asking me a lot of questions about, you know, why are you teaching this way? Or why are you doing this thing? And um, I didn't really know why. And also didn't feel like I could justify myself because I had graduated college, you know, roughly four months ago. Right, right. So they, um, I realized that I was an outsider in their community. I was not the same race that they were. I didn't have any common foundation with any of my students or families at all. And they had learned through lots of different forms of racism and oppression that there's no reason for them to trust somebody like me. Mm -hmm. None. And they're right. Mm -hmm. And so I had to work really hard to build that trust. And it was something I was not prepared to do and something that I immediately saw the need to do. And once I started to actually get to know my families and my kids, like really know them and understand what it was like to live mm-hmm. their lives every day as best as I could, mm-hmm. then we started to build a foundation of trust and build that like learning partnership and relationship. It's a great lesson, right? Um, uh, and and not an easy one because it really puts you in a vulnerable place. Mm-hmm. Um, so what allowed you to be so vulnerable? I don't think I had a choice. I think that if I was going to be an educator, that was the only way to do it. That was the only way I saw. And Everyone that was around me in my school, all of the other teachers and the administrators and the staff, that's just what we did. We built relationships. And before too long, one of my kids' moms was cutting my hair. And, you know, before too long, I was going to their baby showers. And that's just what the community was. And if you weren't willing to do that, then you weren't a part of the community And then you were just this teacher on the outside who the kids had to deal with for a year. Right. And that wasn't who I wanted to be. 
So, you had two uh, growing, wonderful years there, right? Um, And you came back to uh, Wisconsin. And talk about uh, your next step in your journey as an educator. Yeah, well, as a, what, 25-year-old, I thought... I had pretty good experience under my belt, and I knew a lot about teaching, as you do when you're two years in, and that it would be no problem for me to get a job back in my home state. And I went on maybe a dozen interviews with a ton of different districts, large districts, small districts, all over the place, and I wasn't getting called back, and... I was getting called back and telling, being told that they didn't have a position for me anymore or whatever. And I didn't really understand why. I didn't really realize how competitive it was to get a Mm -hmm. teaching job at that time. It was 2008 and everybody was competing for jobs. And so it was a great um, time for me to reflect on who I was and realize that maybe as a 25-year-old, I didn't know everything about Mm -hmm. teaching. And I realized I needed to be a learner still and not this teacher who knows everything Mm -hmm. because I sure didn't. Yeah. And I don't know if I sort of switched interview strategy in the middle of the summer or if I just kind of came to this realization, but I was offered a job and accepted it within a second because I was so excited. Classroom teacher? Classroom teacher, fourth and fifth grade. Okay. um, At a school that had like 450 students or something like that. Um teaching students who were English language learners as well as English speaking students on a team with a teacher who had been my cooperating teacher when I had been in college. And so I walked in the door and she put out her arms and gave me a hug and said, welcome home. How sweet. It truly felt like home. Yeah. It did. Um, but that's not where you are today. That's not so there's I am more. Today. There's, there's more, more to your there's story. More. So I taught um, fourth and fifth grade for a couple of years, one year in second grade as we shift around, um, and then became the instructional coach at at that school. And as I was listening to Mary talk about her role as mm-hmm. an instructional coach, um, I connected with her a lot and remember that feeling of helping teachers to really dig into their mm-hmm. work. Um, my passion for kids really just fueled that work too, because I wanted it to be sort of student centered. Um, and from there, a position for a new educator mentor was posted and I wasn't planning on leaving the instructional coach role, but I think timing is everything. And I thought this is what I want to do. I want to work with people at transitional phases in their life as they enter the field of education. And I want to be their formal mentor because Munera was my informal mentor and she was fabulous and everybody deserves that. Um, so I mentored for three years and again, wasn't looking to change, but another opportunity arose. Um, and so I'm currently the professional learning coordinator for the elementary schools in my district, which means I get to work with coaches. Okay. So this is, this is new. You, you're just fresh in this role. So talk a little bit about what this position entails and maybe, um, some of the possibilities that you're, some of your hopes for this position. So this position, I'm still learning. So (laughs) I'm sure if you asked me in four months, I would have a slightly different answer. Um, This position entails working with instructional coaches in their day-to-day ins and outs. And so I get to support them and coach them and mentor them around whatever they're doing. And so maybe that's leading professional development or working with teams or digging into data Um, 
And so that's the piece of the job that is very one-on-one and just incredible. Mm -hmm. And I also lead professional learning with my partner for the entire group of instructional coaches in our district. And so we meet together with those coaches twice a month and get to dig in together as a, as a team. Um, and then some other odds and ends around the district with professional learning. And it's, um, I feel again, like I'm at home. Mm -hmm. It's, it's feels fitting. And I, I hope, you know, instructional coaches, I think are just so vital. I think they're so important to the work that teachers do. Mm -hmm. They're thought partners and they're able to push teachers, you know, just the right amount and help everybody to sort of focus on what's really important in education. And I hope that our coaches see themselves in that light, that they see how vital their role actually is and that they feel like they have the relationships and the motivation to dig in with teachers so that minds can shift and practice can change. And so I hope their own vision for their work is sort of as high as I see it. Well, it, um, it will be great to talk. I don't know if we'll talk on the podcast, but we will uh, for sure stay in touch and talk about how things are going in four months. So I'm anxious to continue that conversation with you. Great, me too. Um, we're going to move on to the next section. Yes. You have listened to some podcasts, so you know that we're coming up to the timed test portion of of our interview. So um, it'll be 60 seconds long. Um, I have a series of questions. You can go as rapid fire as you want or as slow if you want to elaborate. But whatever we get done is what we're meant to get done in 60 seconds. All right? All right. Okay. And you do not have these questions in front of you. You don't know what's coming. Some <laughs> maybe you do. Uh, some maybe new. So here we go. Favorite month of the school year? February and March. Or Farch, as some people like to call it. <laughs> Favorite read aloud book for children? A recent favorite of mine is Worm Loves Worm. A favorite professional resource book, and you have to choose one because I know that would be challenging for you. My current favorite is The Art of Coaching Teams okay. by Elena Aguilar. Um, school lunch, always, sometimes, or never? Sometimes. That teriyaki chicken, man. Ah, teacher's <laughs> lounge, always, sometimes, or never? Always. Going into work on the weekends, and I should say into school, right? Because I know that all teachers are bringing work home. Going into schools on the weekend, uh, sometimes, always, or never? Sometimes. Um, staff get-togethers, always, sometimes, never? Always. Favorite musical? <laughs> um, currently, it's got to be Hamilton. Okay. And first name of a student that had a huge impact on you? Darian very much. Thank you, made, you. you made it through the timed test portion. Um, and we got to talk a little bit about musicals, which is another thing that connects us. So um, after this podcast, we will continue that uh, on what you're seeing next, because we haven't caught up on that yet. So. We haven't. I look forward to that. Yes. Um, so next, we're going to move into um, our teaching tip section. It's a time for you to share a teaching tip with the listeners. So what's a teaching tip? Something that has worked for you in your positions or in a classroom um, environment that might be helpful to those listening? So one thing that I've always done as a teacher, as a coach, as a mentor, and in my current position um, is getting into the community. And not just sort of in a superficial way where you kind of 
do a drive through and see where the kids live, but really truly experiencing the ins and outs and the day to day of what kids are living. And so going to the restaurants they go to, um, going to their soccer games and birthday parties, um, going to other events that are happening and block parties, um, visiting their homes and getting to know families on their turf instead of on school's turf. And it's something that in my first years of teaching seemed intimidating. I didn't know if I would be welcomed into the community. I didn't know how to just enter into somebody else's space. And what shifted for me and what made it not so intimidating was realizing that it's not only their space, it's our collective space because I am also a part of their life. And the more that we can connect school and their life outside of school, the deeper our relationship goes and the more successful they can be in the classroom because they know that I know what they're living every day. And it's something that families have always been receptive to. And once kids knew that this was my way of doing things, I would get football schedules and soccer schedules and, hey, come see this game. And it's something that some teachers feel cautious about because, well, I don't know why, maybe because it feels uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I can speak a little bit to that. Yeah. When I was younger, I felt like I didn't, I wasn't confident enough in new social settings where, you know, like I didn't know what was going on, that it was harder for me to do things like that. Mm-hmm. As a 43-year-old, I, I see it from a different perspective, right? So I feel like... Age was something that I just needed some time to mature in that. Do you feel like when you were 22, 25, that was something that was just um, a a superpower of yours, a strength of yours? No, I think it was awkward at first. I didn't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And what really helped is having colleagues that sort of went with me or invited Mm -hmm. me along. You know, this kiddo is having this game, like, come with me and see it. Or, you know, the whole staff is invited to so-and-so's birthday party. Why don't you come with us? That seems so attainable. I'm glad that you talked about that because I can see reaching out to the person next door, like, let's go see this. Yeah. Uh, let's go do this together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what a great strategy. Yeah, it helps a lot. And then it doesn't take long for that to take hold in your classroom mm-hmm. and kids to just know that you are there for them, not just in the eight to three time, but anytime. Mm-hmm. Like You are actually there for them through every aspect of their journey as little Mm -hmm. people. So Mm -hmm. it's been very rewarding and something that I will always, always do. Awesome. Thank you for that tip. And now it's time for a commercial break. Did you know that Rodan and Fields is the number one skincare brand in the United States? With four regimens, there are solutions for every skincare need. Each regimen provides your skin with the right ingredients in the right amount in the right order, and lasts for more than 60 days. Preferred customers save 10% and receive free shipping and handling. With an empty bottle, 60-day money-back guarantee, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Everyone can have better skin. It starts with reaching out. I can be found on Facebook at John Peschel. That's J-O-H-N-P-E-S-C-H-L, or by email at myteacherfriendspodcast at gmail.com. 
mention this podcast, My Teacher Friends, when you contact me and receive a special gift just for starting the conversation. Rodan and Fields, life-changing skincare. Hi, this is Connor. Here are some jokes for all the teachers out there. What did the English teacher eat for a snack? Grammar crackers. What is the king of all school supplies? The ruler. A son came home from his first day of school and his mother asked, What did you learn today? Not enough, he replies. They say I have to go back tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And now, back to the podcast. My teacher friends. Well, they're not my teacher friends, but that's the name of the show. Lachelle, it's your turn to talk a little bit about something that's on your mind and in your heart when it comes to education. So what would you like to discuss next? Um, I thought about this a lot and went around a lot about what I wanted to bring to this conversation. And one thing um, that you know, John, is one of my passions is this idea of culturally responsive teaching and what it means to be a culturally responsive teacher. And sort of the question that I've been throwing around is why is culturally responsive teaching essential? And, you know, there have been so many people in my career who have influenced this train of thought that I, that this journey that I'm on. Um, people that I haven't actually met in real life, like Chris Emden, um, or Zaretta Hammond, who I haven't had a conversation with, but, um, and they, they do a really great job. Tim Wise is another one of talking about our educational system and, how it's, you know, it's made for people who are in the majority. It's made for white people. It's made for middle-class people. And it's original intention. The education in our country was really to weed people out and to figure out who the successful people were going to be based on how they define success. And the rest of the people, we could find something else for them to do. And yet we're still operating in 2017 in this same structure and within this same system. And we are finding ways to weed people out without actually intending to do so. Um, And so one thing that I have become very aware of through my years of teaching is my whiteness in education. I loved school, as I said before. Right. School was made for me. School was made exactly for me. And I am not all of my students. And so when I moved out and taught all black students, I became very aware that school was not made for them. And what we did every single day was culturally responsive teaching. I got to know my kids at their core. I got to know their families and their community. And everything I taught was relevant to their lives. Because if it wasn't relevant to their lives, why were they doing it? And I think that that is what motivates my work every single day, whether I'm teaching a homogeneous group of kids or a heterogeneous group of kids. If I am truly going to be responsive to who they are as little people, then I need to know deeply who they are as little people. 
and I need to know their families and their context and their community, and they need to help me create what we're doing in the classroom so that it means something to them. So what are some ways that you helped your students um, or your new teachers that you worked with, right, um, uh, relate the material and make it meaningful for your for the students, for all students, yeah. right? Well, right, because we have tons of students. I mean, right. at the very best, you are an elementary teacher with 15 students in your class. And at the most challenging, you are a secondary teacher who sees 150 kids in a right. day. Right, right. Um, and building those relationships, connecting, truly connecting with kids help, has helped me to understand who they are. And one thing that Zaretta Hammond talks about is selective vulnerability. And this is a recent term for me, but talks about everything I've done in my career where I've taken chances to share about myself with my students or my new teachers or my coaches. And in turn, we are building trust and then they share about themselves with me. And once I know who they are, then I can tie our work into that. You know, if I know that you are a child whose, you know, mom is working really hard at her job and whose dad is working third shift and never around, then I can talk to you about that and why math might be relevant in your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk a little bit, I mean, there will be people who are listening uh, to this podcast who work in mostly white schools. Mm -hmm. Um, how does this message connect with those teachers in those schools that are high achieving? Mm -hmm. I might argue that the work is as important or even more important in those schools. As somebody who's white in this country, there's a lot of power that comes with that, right? There's a lot of privilege that comes with that. And if I walk through this world as a white woman in my sort of bubble of privilege, I never have to be aware of anything else going on around me because it doesn't affect me. And if that's true, I'm never going to be able to truly connect with people who are different from me. And so if we're in a classroom full of kids who are middle-class white kids, for example, people who are in the majority, people who are in the groups that kind of hold the power and have the privilege, and we never teach them about interacting with people who are different from them, my fear is that we will just continue to recycle these same ideas of, you know, privilege doesn't exist or racism doesn't exist because it doesn't affect me. And so the more we can bring awareness to kids, to each other, um, about the inequities that exist in our world and in our education system, um, I think we can we can move mountains with that, you know. But until we're aware, we can't really do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And you talked about forming connections and relationships mm-hmm. and how important that is um, to uh, to connect to all, right? What are some other ways that teachers can start their own journey through this um, besides uh, the connection piece? What does it look like? during the eight to three time period? Mm -hmm. So one thing that I've become really aware of is when I look at curriculum and I look at a lesson, right? 
it, um, it really reflects me. Like, I don't really have to think twice about it. I see myself in the story or in the math problem or in the social studies history textbook. And when I become aware that there are kids in my room who don't see themselves in that curriculum, then I can start to think, okay, well, if this standard is about, let's say, going deeper in reading, right, and reading for complexity, do I have to use this book that doesn't represent these kids in front of me? And I get to start to make some changes to the curriculum and to the resources so that my kids are seeing themselves in what we're doing every day. It's small changes, but it's changes that kids get so excited about. That girl looks like me. Or that kid in that book has two dads, just like I do. And when kids see themselves, then they start to feel like it's meaningful to them. And so, you know, and the relationship piece is there because I can't do that if I don't know about my kids. So if 80% of your students are white, yeah. does that mean that 80% of what you're teaching, what you're reading to kids should represent them? Or are you challenging that idea? That's a great question. I would say that when I walk through this world as a white woman, most of what I see already represents me. And so when I walk through the grocery store, I see a, a picture of a face on a cereal box and probably it's white. Um, you know, when I buy nude colored nylons, they're going to match my skin tone. And so I would challenge that because I think that white people walk through this world and see themselves all over. And so we need to, I need to, for myself, to be the best educator I know how to be, to not sort of represent percentages in what I'm presenting to kids, but to say to them, here are other perspectives on life that you might not be exposed to if it weren't for me. Right. So, so you're probably sharing um, more diverse um role models and examples and characters in your work. Yeah. And I think one other piece of that is that we only know as much as we're exposed to. Our experience sort of defines our assumptions and how we see the world. So if I've only ever seen, you know, somebody with dark skin on a TV show, that's my only idea of what somebody with dark skin can do with their lives. And so as an educator, I have the opportunity to bring in tons of counterexamples. Zaretta Hammond says, reframe these negative ideas and talk about real people who might look different than you and have done really fabulous things with their lives because they're out there. Right. When you think about this concept that um, is so important to you and, and uh, really is in your heart, uh, what would be a final thought you would want to leave the listeners with when it comes to culturally responsive practices? I think that as an educator, if you can look at everything and ask the question, who? Who is being represented? Who feels at home? Who feels like they belong? And who doesn't? And then do your work around the people who don't feel like that matches who they are because that is where we're going to pull kids in and get them to love what they're doing every day and love learning because they see that relevance. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Um, before we wrap up our podcast, I'm going to end with two questions. These are two questions that I love to end with and uh, get um, my guest perspectives on. So I will read both of them and then give you a chance to respond to each separately. What advice do you have for someone entering their first years of teaching and what advice do you have for someone entering their last years of teaching? 
I love this challenge because I never give advice to people entering their last years of teaching. Um, for a new teacher, I would say make your voice heard. I feel like new teachers are often more timid with sharing their ideas and their perspectives with their staff or in team meetings. And new teachers have a lot of brilliance and wisdom that they hold. And so my advice to new teachers would be to voice what you have to say and be confident in that because you do have a lot of knowledge and wisdom. Um, my advice to folks who are in their last few years is to know that even though education is moving so quickly and it seems like there are new things all the time, that your work and your history is so valid and the wisdom that you've earned over the years of teaching still matters, even if it feels like all of these initiatives and other pieces are coming. And similarly, make that heard because we can learn a lot from you. Well, thank you so much. I am so glad you came over today so that we could record together. This has been um, a pleasure to hear more from you and to continue our conversations in a little bit more public way than how we usually talk about education. So thank you so much. Thank you, John. This has been an honor. And that's it for this episode of My Teacher Friends. I'd love to know what you think of the podcast. Send me an email at myteacherfriendspodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like the show on Facebook at My Teacher Friends Podcast. You will also find some resources there linked to today's episode. Please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes. Until next time, remember, celebrate and nurture every child every day.